You know, Kurt, one of the things that really challenges me is believing that because I have access to all this wonderful behavioral science research and knowledge, that I'm somehow better equipped to handle my own natural biases. You know, I have the same sense. I get lulled into thinking that I can overcome my biases because I can simply rely on my knowledge about them that all my years of study somehow make me immune to these biases that are out there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not the case. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, Lori Santos said it perfectly, oh, right? It isn't, I, just because I study it doesn't mean, doesn't that mean that I'm immune, that I, I, I don't have to worry about them anymore? More? No, man, you, 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 we're, we're all suffering from the G.I. Joe effect. The G.I. Joe effect. <laughs> you know, that knowing is not enough to actually change our behavior or overcome our biases, you know, that, that one. So we need to build processes that enable our environments to help us make better decisions. My father used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Oh, I have a bunch of good intentions. <laughs> I My good intent. I, I intended do. to send you the thank you note. I intended to get you a birthday gift. Yeah, what about that? (laughs) (laughs) Now that you bring it up. (laughs) It was my intention. It was a, I I meant to do it, Tim, really. All right. Our guest, Nurit Nobel, applied this knowledge is not enough approach with a firm in Sweden. And they realized that more diverse workforce would make for a stronger company overall. And that intentions just weren't enough to make their recruiting and hiring more diverse. It's, it's really not about being sexist or racist or in any kind of way wanting to, um, you know, to, to not hire in a diverse way. People can be extremely motivated to do so. But exactly as you say, you know that we, we are vulnerable to these biases. Uh, that's just the way that it is. Welcome to Behavior Grooves, a podcast that explores why we do what we do. I'm Kurt Nelson, and along with my co-host, Tim Hulhan, we interview people around the world to better understand our behavioral nuances and apply those insights to work and life. In this episode, we spoke with Nurit Nobel, who was in Stockholm, Sweden, where she's working on her PhD. Nurit is a co-founder of Impactually, along with one of our favorite guests, Christina Gravert. Oh, Christina. Yeah. Impactually is a behavioral science consultancy that is firmly grounded in both academic rigor and real-world experience. Our conversation with Nurit, who, by the way, is related by marriage to the family associated with the Nobel Prize. Cool talked a little bit about Impactually's boost model, but we also spent a significant time on a client case study that looked at de-biasing the recruitment and hiring process. The research that Nurit replied on was done by Iris Bonet at Harvard, and it's focused on getting the process right in order to overrule our natural biases. Theories aside, it was Nurit and her team that put the research to good use. And we'll get into the nitty-gritty of all that as how she dealt with it in our conversation. In our grooving session, we talked about boost, Brexit, and recruiting. So listen to the end to get our insights on what we thought about the conversation. And we have a favor to ask. If you like what you hear, and we know that there are many, many listeners who keep returning for more episodes. I don't understand why, but they do. (laughs) Well, they do. But if you do, please jump on your favorite podcatcher and give us a good review. It signals to Apple and other services that the podcast is likable and the reviews improve our position in the rankings, which helps expose us to more listeners just like you. 
And we want more listeners just like you. <laughs> well, we want well, all of our listeners to be well. exactly the same <laughs> in our recruitment process of listeners. So send it to the people that you think are exactly like you. <laughs> Is that what we want, Tim? No, we want diversity. Oh. We want diverse listeners. Well, we'll have to apply some of the lessons from this episode to get some more diverse listeners. But for now... Send it to your Send friends. Send it to your friends. Yeah, right. for now, definitely. And so learn a little bit about debiasing that uh, recruitment process, whether it be for your company and or for your podcast. Uh, so sit back, grab your notebook along with some Swedish fish to munch on. Yum. And listen to our conversation with Nurit Nobel. Nurit Nobel. Thank you for joining us on the Behavioral Groups podcast, and welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We are glad to have you. So we want to start with a speed round. Um, bicycle or unicycle? Ooh, bicycle. I can't, I can't hardly master that. So unicycle, <laughs> way, way over my league. Monet or Michelangelo? Michelangelo. Israel, Switzerland, or Sweden? Oh, wow. Well, I, I would have to say uh, I, there is no way I'm going to come out good out of this, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I'll say Sweden because that is the place that I've chosen and, and this is where I live and this is home now. All right. Okay. Nudges or incentives, which are more effective? Nudges all the way. <laughs> ah, yeah, Not good. an economist. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about nudges. You have done in in your work along with Christina Gravert and the the company that you have, you guys have started a company Impactually that works a lot with nudges and working with organizations. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly what we do. And, um, you know, we've just found that there was actually a gap in taking a lot of this research that's being done by academics such as Christina and, and many, many others, um, such good research uh, that's being done about how you can use insights about how people make decisions and how they they think and, and, and how to maybe steer them towards behavior change. And there's such a big gap between taking all that research and applying it in real life. And we found that there's interest from both companies and also the public sector in in actually doing that and and leveraging these insights in helping people eat better uh, work out more save more money etc and and that's when we so we we started impactually based on that background and um christina my uh, my colleague and my co-founder who has been uh, on the on your podcast um she was back then a, a postdoc at gothenburg university she's now a professor at the university of copenhagen whereas i was coming more from actually the company side so i was working in marketing for many years for procter and gamble and after that i was a, 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 in in a brand consultancy firm and for me it was like Okay, so I've done a lot of applying psychological insights to maybe help companies sell products, kind of sharpen their brand image, uh, um, address their consumers in a in a better way. But can we? Can I actually take this for you know the side of again helping people achieve their goals, like do something that they really want to do, but from some reason something is standing in the way. This very famous intention to action gap. You know, you have the right intention, 
but there's just something standing in the way between you and your lofty goals, whether they are to save money, lose weight, uh, etc. Um, and that's kind of how we got together and started and, and decided to collaborate and, and started Impactually. I love that. It's, it's, it's terrific just to be focused on, um, on something that's going to have such good, you know, have such a positive impact on the world, uh, on companies and individuals. And you have come at Impactually from the perspective of, as you've mentioned, brand consultant. You, you've been in the consulting world for some time. You work for big companies. What's it like being an entrepreneur developing these, these tools? Yeah, that's... That's a great question. Um, well, I would say that it's really fun because, I mean, I was at Procter & Gamble for six years. For those who don't know, it's a major American conglomerate making a lot of consumer goods, household names like Pampers and Gillette and, and Pantene and, and so on. And I really, really loved being at, at P&G. I, I, I was there for six years and um and I learned so much and I got so many opportunities, among which to relocate to Geneva, Switzerland, and then to Stockholm, Sweden, which is where I live today. Um, and, and being part of such a big company, also you 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 get exposed to, to such um, such great people, you learn really from the best, and you have like all these training opportunities. But then going and doing things on your own, you have such freedom. You know, yeah. at Procter & Gamble, if you have an initiative and you you want to change something, good luck. You know, I mean, at, at best, it will take a few years until it's implemented. And at worst, no one's going to listen just because the, the wheels of the machine uh, work so slowly. Whereas today, if either Christina or I have a great idea, tomorrow we can already run with it. Uh, so I think that's that's the part I I think is really different between working in a big company and, and being an entrepreneur, and that I've really uh, come to appreciate uh, this kind of freedom to do what you do. And then also it means that everything sort of depends on that you actually take initiative and and do stuff. So I've once heard the metaphor. Someone told me that being an entrepreneur it's like it's like riding a bicycle in the sense that if you paddle, you know, you move forward. If you don't, you don't. Like you're stuck. So it. It builds on that you're always in motion, you're always pushing forward, you're always doing things. If you stagnate, there won't be any business left. Yeah, interesting. And, and thus you chose a bicycle instead of a unicycle. Exactly. In the there you go. <laughs> exactly. So I, one of the things that you have done is you put an online course uh, around Boost. Um, tell, us, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about Boost, what that is and what you're trying to achieve with that, because... Our, my co-host here, Tim, has gone through it, and he hasn't told me anything about it. <laughs> I'm keeping all the good stuff for myself. I know you are. You're trying to keep it away from me, man. <laughs> well, before we developed the online course, the, the Boost model was basically our uh, the model that we developed for ourselves as a company of, this is how we work with nudges. This is how we work with uh, applying nudges and applying behavioral interventions if we want to take sort of the, the, the more, the, the larger um, uh, term for it. Uh, And and when we started working with companies and and, uh, working with the public sectors, working with different organizations, we needed a model that we can explain to them, you know, this is what we should be doing. And and the boost model is basically that. And, And what it does is it takes you through the different stages of what you do from having this kind of behavioral problem of, you know, 
we want people to do X, but they're not doing X. And even the people themselves want to do X, but from some reason they're not doing that. So how do we go from that to applying another intervention that actually moves the needle and gets more people to do that? So basically, the you know, in a nutshell, uh, w- what we talk about in the boost model. So that it's it, the the first step is behavior. First, we need to understand what is the behavior we want to encourage. A lot of the times people come to us, be it companies, organizations that we work for, or people that come to our face-to-face courses in Stockholm, our executive courses, and they have um, they say that they have challenges like, we want our employees to be more collaborative, or we want people to think more about the environment. And the first step that we always try to make it clear to them is that nudging and behavioral interventions are tools to change behavior, not attitude. It builds on the fact that people already have the right attitude. We're not going to convince them to think one way or the other, but we're going to change the environment or the context in a way that nudges them towards that behavior. So the first thing we need to think about is, okay, if your goal is that you want your employees to think more about the environment, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that you know, they commute more by public transportation than by car. Does it mean that they turn off their uh, computers at the end of the day? Does it mean that they recycle more? What is the actual behavior rather than attitude that you're trying to encourage? So that's the first step. Once you've understood that, you go to obstacle. That's the the first O in the boost. What's standing in their way? Why are they not doing this today? Why are they not commuting by public transport? Uh, is it because you know there aren't any buses? Is it because you know the timetable is not good enough, or is it because the stop is too far away? W- what is it? Um, there's so many times that we've seen that people just assume that they know what the problem is, uh, and they jump into the solution but they've actually failed to diagnose. So it's really, really important to spend time on trying to understand what the problem actually is, so what the obstacles actually are. So that's the first O. Then we move into outline, so outline interventions. And this is the part where when we do a longer project, we would actually go into the literature, the scientific literature, and see, okay, in similar situations, what what research is out there um, that... Where, where people have already tried different kinds of nudges that have worked that we can see. Maybe someone has tried, you know, implementation intentions, like give the employees in the beginning of the week, I commit to taking the bus at least three times this week, sign in for something like that. But maybe that has been tried. Maybe something else. Like what can we see that's out there? Because there's so much knowledge and there's so many databases that we can use. So this is what we were doing that phase. And then, so that's the second O. And then we have S study. As you know, you know, we come from academia, at least my, my co-founder Christina does, and, and I am also today a, a PhD candidate. And in general, in nudging and in behavioral economics, it, it's very much a field that even though we want to now apply it in, in, in practice, it comes from research, right? It comes from science. So a big part of it is is actually, let's test it out. Okay, we went to the literature, we saw a bunch of ideas that worked for someone somewhere, but will they work for us in our context? So doing something like a randomized control trial and actually trying to to see, will this work for us um, in order to not get disappointed. And then the uh, the last letter, the T, is tailor. 
So once we receive the results of our study, we basically tailor it to this particular situation. We start thinking about scaling, we start thinking about costs and benefits, etc. So this is basically the process from start to finish, from the behavior until you actually tailor an intervention to address it. And we developed that process as our process, basically. This, this is how we work. This is how we work with companies. This is how we work with organizations that turn to us. But then when, when we did that, basically for a year, we started seeing also that there is demand out there for more people who want to be able to apply themselves nudging or behavioral interventions in their own organizations or in their own lives or, you know, just go one level above from, you know, I'm a behavioral science nerd and I like listening to podcasts or, you know, I love watching TED Talks by Dan Ariely or, you know, maybe I've read a bunch of books and I really love thinking fast and slow. But a lot of people want to move above, like beyond that level to I actually want to apply this. Um, you know, either in, in in my organization, in my work, or in my life, and that's why we decided to do the the, the online course to actually enable people to design their own nudges, like become their own behavioral scientists, and and apply this knowledge them, by themselves. Yeah, to take those that intention of trying to do something and now giving them some framework and some tools to be able to actually apply those, as you said make a behavioral intervention for myself and how am I to do this? That sounds fantastic. It it also, I I felt like when I was going through the course, it feels like it's very much tailored to uh, applying to any, any person in a corporate job from where they are. They don't have to be a chief executive or the, the head of marketing or HR to do this. Right. I mean, it's very practical. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we normally say that if you work with people or in, in some kind of way relate to other people and, and you're actually interested in that and you're interested in how can I gain more tools to influence people to do something that, that's right for them, that's good for them, to, to help them make better decisions, then you could probably have use for another tool in your toolbox. And we're also not saying that and that's also really important that nudging is, you know, the ultimate tool or that it can solve all the problems. And definitely, I mean, you know, again, my my partner is an economist, so she's definitely a fan of incentives. And But in general, you know, we don't say that other uh, tools to change behavior, such as, you know, regulations, laws, uh, incentives and so on, those have their place. But nudging is definitely something extra that I think a lot of people even though behavioral science has sort of been exploding in, in recent years and, you know, all these popular books and so on, but a lot of people are still missing the, the final piece of like, okay, so, but how do I actually work with this? How do I yeah. move from read a few cool books, had lots of aha moments on how people work, but actually how to apply this in reality? So I think that's sort of what we try to do with the online course and that's kind of the feedback that we've gotten that that really works, that people really feel also in our face-to-face courses, people really feel enabled, like, okay, I actually have something that I can go out and work with now. Well, and it's it's hard to imagine that there's anybody that isn't interested in how they're interacting with other people. I'm sure there are some people out I mean, there. I don't, I, I can't imagine that. That's crazy talk. <laughs> there are some people out there, but they're not listening to this podcast. They're not listening. <laughs> All of our listeners are definitely exactly. interested in that. Yeah. Well, Nora, tell us a little bit about, so I, I know you've been 
doing this and you've been doing some really interesting work with some organizations. And particularly, uh, we had talked before the, we started here about some work you're doing around biases and, and hiring and various different things. Tell us a little bit about some of that. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite projects. It's also one of my most recent projects. I've been working with a tech company to help them apply insights and knowledge from behavioral science in order to de-bias their recruiting processes. So their goal, one of their goals, uh, they embarked on a major recruiting process. Basically, by the by summer, they want to recruit um, around 11 people. And they are about 11 people. So basically doubling the size of the company. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a startup. It's, it's kind of the next level after a startup. And, uh, and they really wanted to increase diversity because, um, I mean, we all know that diversity is important. Diversity works. There's tons of data about it. And actually, when I, when I started the project, one of the things that were important for me is actually to look into that data. But even when you do that, you really see that there's lots of, of again, data-based reasons of why you want to increase diversity, in a, even in a very small company. Things about how diverse teams have have better bottom line, so it contributes to the bottom line, but also to employee engagement. So employees themselves feel more satisfied and more engaged at work when they work in diverse teams. And this is something that we also heard from the people themselves working in the company, uh, not in management, but when we actually went to the developers, they were telling us, like, we actually feel that it's a bit boring that, you know, there is not a single person who is not, you know, a white male in their 20s in this company. So people also <laughs> feel it themselves. Um, but when I started looking at uh, working with this project, it was really important for me to look into the data and, and actually even summarize it in a little like, you know, this is this is why we want to do this, to also get buying from everyone so that it's not only like a pet project of the CEO who wants to increase diversity, but actually that everyone um, that everyone kind of signs up to the cause together. And this will prove actually very, very uh, important in the future when I get into the success drivers on, on what actually drove success. But basically, then, so starting with this goal of, you know, okay, we're going to recruit 11 people. We want it to be a diverse workforce and particularly with gender diversity. And we set the goal that at least 30% of the recruiting, we want it to be of women and, and also specifically in the tech roles. And then, um, and then moving forward and, and kind of looking at, okay, so what does the research say? Why, why is it hard or harder to recruit women and what can be done about it? And really when, when starting to look into this, there's fascinating stuff out there. Stuff like, you know, the words that you choose, the word that you put in your, um, in your job ad will determine the number of women that apply or don't apply. And there are actually online tools that we have used and that we're happy to recommend. So uh, I, I have no connection to them. But if anyone is interested, just shoot me an email and I'm happy to share. Um, but we've used some online tools that use actually artificial intelligence to go over your job ad and tell you, you know, this is a problematic word. This will probably score really well with males, but not attract enough females. Um, so, you know, you probably want to steer clear of this and you probably want to do more of that. So words actually like together or, you know, team or, um, uh, or these kind of things actually tend to attract women more. And the, and the nice thing was that this was a company that 
that had team and collaboration as really important aspects to it. So one just needs to highlight what is already there. This isn't about, you know, making something up, but more about thinking of putting your best foot forward in order to attract the candidates that you want to attract. So one thing was about the, the choice of wording. Then another thing was about also things like uh, salary expectations and how you communicate that. Oh, and even just a step before that, your requirements for the ad. You know, a lot of the times we look at job ads and then we see, you know, kind of a grocery list of requirements. You need to have had four years experience in this and only in this kind of companies and this kind of degrees and this and that. And what what research has shown is that women are less likely to apply to jobs that they don't feel that they answer 100% of the criteria. Whereas men will actually apply even if they answer only 75% of the criteria. And I can tell you as later when we did the recruiting process that even when people only answer 75% of, of the criteria, often as the recruiter, you sort of like, if you see something that you like, you still let that person pass. And then, you know, often we were convinced later but if only the men will put themselves in that position, then you're much more likely to hire that guy who's probably really great, but you never would have even met the girl who is also equally great and also equally answers only 75% of your criteria. But she never applied because she didn't think she had a chance. So actually removing these grocery lists of 10 items and maybe only really having like three items like these are the must-haves and then we have a, a bunch of nice to haves but like feel free to apply even if you don't have all these specific things so things like that so it started with how we articulated the ad where we placed the ads and then also moving forward to the actual recruiting process uh, so things like you know we know from science and um, that I mean, you guys you guys love to talk about framing and priming and all these kind of funky effects. So we know where, that... Where, where did you ever heard that idea? I know, I know. I've I, never uh, heard those words. Exactly. wearing my Einstein socks. So we know that, for example, the order in which you review candidates also determines a lot how are you going to judge them? And I don't know if you guys are familiar, but there's kind of a, a very, very famous study in that context from my home country, from Israel, about judges and how judges are tend to be more lenient earlier in the day. So that the closest they are to the meal that they've eaten, uh, they're more likely to actually give a lenient sentence. And then the hungrier they get, the, 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 the worse um, the worst of people are. So having things like a, a, a way to randomize candidates so that you don't always meet them in the same order so that you always have an advantage if you are the candidate whose last name starts with, you know, A, for example. And having, so things like having a diverse team that is, is owning the recruiting process. Because, you know, if, if you only have white males doing it, since we also have something called uh, the affect bias, you know, people tend to also rank higher people who are like them. Uh, people tend to confuse the question, is this a competent candidate, with the question, do I like this person? Yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to recruit a person who is likable or, you know, a person who will be collaborative. I mean, this is not about now we're only going to recruit assholes and, oh, sorry, was I, that, that's maybe I shouldn't have said that. Okay. You know, that's why we, we have recruited Jim and he's one of those. I, so. and, and I like to talk about assholes. Right, know. right. Exactly. Totally so, so this isn't about, you know, just removing that out of the equation, but more understanding that we are more likely to think that people who are like us are likable. So one of my, one of the things that I removed when, when I came to, to, to this company and to the recruiting process here is that one of the questions that they had in an interview was, what's your favorite sci-fi novel? Mm. And, and I can really see how the person who, who did the recruiting, when it, this was a startup, right, of like three people, you know, the they are really into Right. This is the 20 something white male exactly. guy asking the question. So he thinks I mean, it's totally relevant. I, 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 I totally see how that would make sense for them. They were like, this is something that I'm really passionate about. I want to recruit cool people. They're probably into the same cool stuff that I like. So I'm going to ask about that. Um, but, you know, I think what we had to, you know, have a, a shift in attitudes of people can be great developers and great engineers and not be into sci-fi. Um, and, and that's totally, totally okay. So let's remove that question uh, and maybe ask like <laughs> right. about your hobby or, or, or you know, your, your interests, but it doesn't, not necessarily has to be sci-fi. Um, so, so these are just some of the things and I can really go on and on and on, but there's so much that behavioral science tells us about how recruiting processes are very, very flawed uh, in, in many ways and, and lead to bias, uh, that there's a lot one can do if, if we are aware of this to actually remove that and yeah. make them much more pure uh, in well, order it, to really recruit the best person for the job. Yeah, it's much more than just being aware. You, you and your client went so far as to construct guidelines and uh, and protocols so that you would not just be aware of the biases, but intentionally avoid them. Yeah, and I think that's fabulous. We, we I also want to make sure that we, our listeners, I'm sure will um, get really pissed if we don't say how it worked out. So yeah. how did this this effort turn out yeah so first of all it's really great that we're having this conversation because i get to kind of um like process it as a preparation for the blog post that i'm for sure gonna write about <laughs> the whole thing um so so that's definitely coming but so we're not at the end of the recruiting process yet but by now we have recruited seven people okay and four out of them are women including two engineers out of the three engineers that we've recruited. So wow. this is over 50%. And again, it might it might balance out. And, and these are very small numbers, of course. But I think for the, the company's goals, the goals that they have set for themselves and the goal that I set for myself, we're really, really happy. Um, so, so, that was, so that was actually, uh, that's, that's a really great feeling when... Again, we take all these things from research, but like I mentioned before, before you test it out, you don't really know if it's going to work in your context or not. Uh, and and I think it's it's been really great to see that it, it really can work. And I have to say that there have been challenges along the way. It is definitely not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting now talking to you, but 
it's not, I really understand why there is a challenge with diversity, especially in tech. It is hard and one needs to work extra hard in order order to reach these uh, populations who are uh, traditionally have been less um, reached in, in, in tech, but they are out there and they are excellent and 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 one gets a lot from putting in that effort because of again what i said in the beginning that diversity actually contributes so many things to a team so so it's worth taking the effort but it is a, it is a conscious a, a company needs to tell themselves you know we are willing to put in the extra man hours that it takes to, to reach out and, and to do these things and to do these structural interviews and all of the things that, again, that are part of these processes, uh, it, it's much easier to just like, ah, we're just going to have a conversation, right? right? No one needs to write an interview guide. No one needs to do a scoring scale. We don't need to have multiple reviewers. It's much easier to just like, ah, I'm just going to meet them and ask them about their favorite sci-fi novel. Well, but again, that's not, that's not going to get you the diversity. So you want the diversity, you do need to invest. And and it's not easy, but it's possible. Well, and it's not that it's a malicious intent for those people to have that conversation, to believe that having that conversation that is is still going to get you the ability to, to, to create a, a workforce that's diverse and different things. Because you're going, I'm not... I'm not biased. I I don't have those things. I would definitely hire a woman as as quickly as I would hire a man. But the fact of the matter is, is that the entire process from the words you choose for your, you know, job ad to how you structure the interviews to asking, hey, what's your favorite sci-fi novel actually limit some of those components. And we don't, it's great that it's, it's uh, as Tim said, you're bringing the awareness up, but now you're actually putting processes in place to say, all right, it's not enough to be aware. It's enough. We have to be, move on further from this. We interviewed yeah. April Seifert, um, who has done some research on gender stereotypes. That was her was on gender stereotypes and she brings up some of the same things and just in in even thinking through how people are you know putting out their the way they're recruiting people is very different if if you're trying to look at bringing in women because women will as you said it's only 75 if i have 80 percent of of the requirements i'm missing 20 whereas the (laughs) men are going to go I got fifty. I got this. You know, I'm good. In the bag. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something else uh, that I found interesting. I'm just playing back to April's discussion. Uh, She talked about how when she tested herself uh, as a forty-something-year-old woman who is extremely aware and focused on this, she still has uh, a a gender bias. You know, toward hiring men. Yeah. And. so it's not so much about, um, and, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm hesitating. The implicit frame. bias test. The, yeah, yeah. the implicit association bias. test. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, that's it. Yep. It's, it's available uh, to all of us. It's part yeah. of who, who we are. And so I love the fact that you have a client and that we all, 
I, I think the world can be a better place if we be, become more intentional and yeah. hire people um, like you and Christina and get impactually involved and, and actually help design the processes that will ensure better hiring yeah. practices. No, but I think this is such an important point, this idea of that it's, it's really not about being sexist or racist or in any kind of way wanting to, um, you know, to, to not hire in a diverse way. People can be extremely motivated to do so. But exactly as you say, we know that we, we are vulnerable to these biases. Yeah. That's just the way that it is. And, and, and part, of, part of what we do, yes, awareness is the first step, but... It, it, it can't go all the way because we cannot override our mind. And exactly like uh, like April said, you know, we all have it. We, we all have it, uh, even with our best intentions. And we do. I do believe that people have the best intentions, uh, but, but it's absolutely impossible to override our mind and, and the kind of cognitive uh, mistake that it does uh, every now, once in a while. And that's why the whole premise uh, of, of using behavioral insights is to change the context or to change the environment in order to help promote these goals rather than just explaining to people, you know, uh, by the way, you have this bias, so can you please just not act like it? And that's actually, I think, uh, and, and I believe that this came out in, in, in the podcast with April as well, that this is rather tragic that today as companies are becoming more aware of the virtues of diversity, their answer is to invest more in diversity training. Um, yeah. You know, this is why diversity is important or like this is how to do it. Uh, and again, awareness is important, but we know that it's only the first step and it's it's absolutely not enough. So what you should do, if you are in any way in, in a position of influence in a company, big or small, that cares about diversity, is really to look into your processes. Uh, anything from recruiting, promotion, performance review, uh, there's a lot that goes on uh, in the way that also how employees interact with, uh, uh, with their managers, with their tasks, uh, with their expectations, uh, how men and, and, and women are different things like salary negotiations. I actually recently uh, read a fact that did not come from an academic research, but astonished me. So I am currently a PhD candidate at Stockholm School of Economics. That's, um, in, and in terms of bachelor's and master's, it's one of the most highly regarded business schools in Sweden. So a lot of the top companies hire from it. And they do a survey every year at the end of the year with their uh, bachelor and master's students, asking them about all kinds of you know, expectations towards the job force and, and so on. One of the questions is, what is your expectation for starting salary? Again, these are bachelor and master's students. So virtually have zero years of experience. They're all equal to each other. Of course, uh, the, the normal distribution of grades. Uh, and in that survey, they see that women, on average, expect to earn 3,000 kroner, uh, so that is ooh, uh, around 300 US dollars, less uh, per month, less than their male colleagues. Wow. Uh, and really quite astonishing because, again, we can't blame it on years of experience. We can't blame it on grade point average. These are, you know, all else being equal. The only difference being female or male, the females expect to earn less. 
And this is absolutely something that we need to be aware of, because if the first question that we ask is, what are your salary expectations? And, you know, we also know about anchoring, right? They yeah. anchor at a lower price. Um, so this is something that's also very important to, to be aware of for employers. Sure, we all want to get a good deal, but we also probably want to pay fairly. If you want to pay, pay fairly, don't ask people what they expect decide first what you want to give. Yeah. Well, we talked just recently with Linda Babcock um, from Carnegie Mellon University, and she's done a lot of work on uh, negotiation, particularly women in negotiation. And the fact of the matter is, is, is while you're talking about the expectations of starting salary, women are actually less likely to negotiate that salary even once it's offered. So Absolutely. that starting point already with a, a lower starting point then with this lack of probably trying to negotiate higher, it, it just lends itself to, to doubling down on some of these different things. And one of the other things that you talked about that you were just saying, just in this recent component saying like, what are the expectations that you, you um, have for people and how are you, you know, as, as a manager, what are you telling your, your employees and the difference between men and women? And Linda's done some real interesting research there too of, Inside of an organization, women get uh, asked to do the non-promotable tasks much more than yeah. men typically do. The yeah. things like, can you plan the company party? Can you, right. you know, make can you make some copies? Could you yeah. uh, make sure that uh, the team has got lunch? Make sure yeah. you're um, on the, today. you know, the planning meeting for, you know, this other thing that doesn't really relate to yeah. your specific job. Uh, and and again, it's awareness in and of itself is is a start, but it isn't yeah. enough. You need yeah. to really put processes in place to be able to say, all right, are we distributing these tasks across the entire workforce? Yes. Not just because we go, oh, that's you'll be good at that. You know, yeah. and those are different pieces. So yeah. absolutely. Fantastic. Super yeah. important and super true. Emotional labor, just like in the work and outside of the work, women tend to to take more more on themselves in in that regard. So, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. So we met you through Christina, and we yeah. you know and different things. But the story of you meeting Christina, I think, yeah. is really fascinating. So you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so before when we were chatting, I asked you if you wanted the long version or the short version. So I can uh, take a bit more of an elaborate version. Of, um, but basically, as I mentioned, uh, it all started at South by Southwest. South oh, by Southwest. Yes. <laughs> Austin, Texas connection. Austin, Texas. A Swedish, you know, an Israeli connection. connection. Of course. Uh, an <laughs> exactly. Israeli exactly. Would be perfect sense. Yeah. Um, Everybody no, so, what happened was I was working for a brand consultancy, a really, really great company here in Stockholm, working with some of uh, the, the biggest company companies in Sweden. And one of the great, great benefits that I had working for them was that we had a budget that every year we could take and basically uh, do whatever we wanted with as long as it's in some way related and, you know, to, to what we do. And what I chose to do with, with the money I got for 2016 was to travel to South by Southwest as, as sort of, you know, a, an inspirational conference, go there, get inspired, take back some learnings to the company. Um, but as it happens, it sort of met me in a, in a 
kind of a crossroads in my career where I was also kind of maybe looking to get inspired, not only for the purpose of taking back learnings to my own company, but also just personally. And and in South by Southwest, those who who, who don't know it, it's, it's a really, really big conference in Austin, Texas, that's sort of made famous by, you know, that's where Twitter first, you know, became known and all kinds of other cool things. And so many things are happening at the same time. It's like the worst FOMO ever. Um, and, and by the way, it is a music festival as well. I mean, right, right, it is. Make sure that we get the fact that it is a music festival. Started as a musical festival. Right. Go ahead, Nuri. And then, it, then the real stuff happened. Twitter, whatever. <laughs> that all came. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, I feel like I totally like just got on your bad side by neglecting. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so You're music fine. festival. I'm on his bad side every day. <laughs> music festival, film festival, but then also developed into a conference with really, really great speakers. And um, and I went there, and as I mentioned, so it's they have like forty speakers at the same time. So you know, it's a you really need to be kind of focused. And me being the type A personality that I am, you know, printed the schedule beforehand and went over it and kind of chose what I was going to go to. And then um, when I got back and kind of, you know, tried to digest everything and like going over my notes, I I realized that I was both really attracted to and and like kind of had most fun at the, the talks that were touching upon behavioral science. And I wasn't a stranger to the topic. I I, my both my bachelor and my master in psychology, but as mentioned, I kind of chose until then to kind of channel my psych- my knowledge in in human behavior and psychology to the more practical aspects of marketing. But uh, but in this um, but in this conference, there was one talk uh, which was about um, uh, so a guy from the UK who did a talk about how can we analyze Brexit which was the hot topic at the time, from a behavioral science standpoint. So he talked about system one and system two and how, you know, the the kind of remain people were talking more to the system two and kind of presenting all this data and facts and figures. Um, but, the, but the leave people were kind of talking more to the system one, the Homer Simpson in us. And then he, he had a bunch of other stuff and I, I was just fascinated. And then there was another talk that was, talking about the research on how uh, if you present to people uh, kind of um, photos of their future self, they're more likely to put more money into their pension savings because you kind of make it more tangible to them. You are going to grow old one day, et cetera, et cetera. So all these kind of talks, really, really kind of random stuff, but I was really, really inspired. And I came back to Sweden and I just started like kind of sketching in my notebook and thinking, what can I do with this? Um, I knew about the behavioral insight team. I had read Nudge. I'd read Thinking Fast and Slow. Suddenly it all came together and I was like, is anyone doing this here? And if not, can I be that person? And and for, from there, the, the next step, at least naturally for me, when I want to learn a lot about a topic, I try to reach out to people who can teach me. And when I wanted to know what exists in applied behavioral science in Sweden, I started Googling and searching for people who 
are experts in that or are operating within that uh, in this geography and, and could help me figure it out. And Christina was the first person actually that came up when, when I was doing that search. So I actually emailed her and just out of the blue and just told her like, this is me, this is my background. These are my intentions. You know, can we have coffee? She was living in Gothenburg at the time doing her postdoc, but she was traveling uh, to, to Stockholm every once in a while. And we met. Uh, and the first time we met, it was actually not at all relevant to talk about any kind of collaboration or, or company or anything. And that wasn't what I was interested in either. You know, it was literally just an open conversation and like what exists. And and she she was super generous. And she said, you know, read these five books, uh, read these 10 reports, look into these five consultancies that kind of sound like what you're trying to describe that you are interested in doing. And, you know, do that and, and then we can talk. Uh, so she gave me some really great resources. So was she exactly how earnest this student can be exactly the professor in her was was giving me homework exactly um but but i was i really appreciated that because you know that that's what i wanted and um and and then a few months later i just wanted to keep in touch with her so we just met again but this time i told her so actually you know christina before summer i i gave my notice to the company i was working at by the way, giving notice in Sweden is three months, not two weeks, as it is in the wow. Yeah, wow. exactly. So I gave my notice before summer, and now it was after summer, and I met her again, and I told her, so, you know, this was Thursday. I told her, tomorrow is my last day. On Monday, you know, I'm on my own, I, I, I'm on my own and I'm going to start working on this. Um, and then suddenly, you know, she 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 was in a different place in in her career journey and suddenly became more interested and uh, and suddenly the idea of collaboration you know came about and 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 that's and that's how it happened i love it i i with ex the exception of the fact that you initially positioned South by Southwest as this conference and missed that it's this fabulous music festival. Yes, you should all go to South by Southwest and only attend the concerts, none of this conference stuff. You should be sleeping during the day and watching the show during the night. I, I, that's about the only way to get through it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah I, I have seen, I, I, I've been several years and saw great shows, but also attended some really cool uh, conference things. HP had yeah. some really great things a, a couple of years ago. Uh, okay, I so really, that, I, I really respect you if you actually did manage to do both, because I have to tell you that I was running so much from like place to place during this conference. I think uh, my colleague and I, I went with a colleague, we measured our steps were like 15,000 a day. <laughs> oh, and yeah. the time the evening came, we were so exhausted that I was actually, that I never actually attended any of the, sorry, any of the fantastic musical performances or the film premieres or, or any of these things, which is really regrettable. But, uh, but hey, I, I, I later started my own company based on inspiration from the conference. So I think that I it worked out all right. I think it's absolutely 100% acceptable to do yeah. that. I, it's, it, we can have this whole conversation later. We'll, 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 we'll punch it out and do whatever. <laughs> well, Nuri, you could redeem yourself if we spent just a couple minutes talking about music. How about that? I know yeah. you're, you're a dancer. 
And right. so, so do you approach music from the perspective of can I dance to it or not? Uh, well, I mean, dancer is a is a big word. I dance. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't call myself a dancer, but um, but I dance Lindy Hop. So I mentioned this when we were chatting before. But again, not not in any kind of competitive and or professional level, but more as a, as like a hobby. But I well, well, wait, wait, explain yeah. explain to our listeners uh, who right. might not be familiar with the Lindy Hop. Yeah, definitely. So Lindy Hop is a type of swing dance that. Um, developed and was popular in the 1930s in Harlem, New York. Um, mostly was danced by African Americans at the time, and that so that dance was danced to swing music, so music with a swing beat, jazz music with a swing beat, and it was really really popular in the 30s and was uh, in the in the um, dance clubs of Harlem, the Savoy, uh, all these ballrooms, and um, popular in the 30s, but then started to die out in the 40s uh, and, and definitely was long gone in the 50s as the big band started uh, started dying out. And so it was actually dormant. So no one was doing it for several decades. I think that's the cool story about Lindy Hop. Uh, it kind of died out and no one was doing it. And then in the 80s, uh, started kind of a, a movement of a revival. And that movement happened in three places around the globe simultaneously, the U.S., the U.K., and Sweden. (laughs) Actually, um, today, uh, one of the biggest um, venues for uh, for Lindy Hop dancing in the world is a a camp that happens every summer in a little town called Herreng uh, in the north of Sweden, or north of Stockholm anyway. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's an event that's like attended by, uh, I think between 500 and 1000 people every summer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so it's five weeks, uh, in this little, little, like really village. So what happened was that there were a few Swedes who got interested in this, uh, watching old movies and they traveled to the U.S. and looked for the old dancers from the Savoy Ballroom, the people who were dancing it at the time, and they actually managed to find a few of them, brought them to Sweden. These people, da- these people showed them how to do the steps, how to do the dance. Uh, these people were in their 60s and 70s by this point in the 80s. And, um, and, and then it just, like, you know, snowballed from there. And today it's totally has a life of its own and clearly danced by many people around the world. And yeah, what I love about it is that it's, uh, first of all, I love the story. I think it's really cool. And, uh, but also it really is a very positive dance, very happy dance. Like it's, it's a lot about, um, yeah, it's a lot about just like feeling the music and having fun rather than like being very, very accurate in your movements and, you know, following routines uh, and, and, and this and that. So, yeah. yeah. Right steps and various different things. So I want to, I'm going to take this down a tangent because you, you just mentioned something here in regards to that this was revitalized in the eighties and these people from Sweden learned about it in music and they actually went to the U S and just asked, and they asked these, these people that had been doing it back in the thirties to learn about it. You talked about your, you know, reaching out to Christina and just asking. And we had talked about that a little bit in advance. And there's, there's something I think that you had said prior to actually, you know, this, this talk where you said, it's amazing if you just ask people how open they are often to, 
to sharing and talking and and being really helpful. And I think that's one of it's it's a point that I just have it keeps coming up in here, and I, I just find that fascinating. Um, that a whole revivalist dance movement, you know, partly helped by going to the U.S. and Harlem and asking these old people to, to hey, we're interested. Yeah. Yeah. And they were generous with their time. And I think we we often don't, we're too scared to ask. And I think that inhibits a lot of great connections, great learning, and a number of different things that could happen. Um, and so I just wanted to point that yeah. out. Sorry, my well, tangent yeah. down the rabbit hole. Absolutely. We should dare more. I, I absolutely agree. Does does daring matter? Does where you dare? I, I find that asking for directions in New York City is really easy because uh, you know everybody almost so there's so many tourists. In fact, sometimes I found myself asking for directions in New York City, and the person answering says, "Well, I don't live here, but <laughs> I have a map and I can help you." Yeah. Uh, and, and it's different in a small town where you might get a look and and maybe. After the look, you'll get a pleasant response, you know, some some kind of uh, nice response. But but uh, I'm always surprised at how New Yorkers, uh, because they get asked all the time, are like they're very quick to respond. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that we talked about before is in in the context, I think, of both this Lindy Hop revival and you know my own reaching out to Christina and reaching out to other people, is that a lot of the time, you know, I find that people are really generous and they really love helping. And and also people love talking about and sharing something that they're passionate about. And I imagine that Frankie Manning, who traveled from the US to teach the Swedes how to dance Lindy Hop, he was just super excited that someone wants to learn this dance that you know he really loved as a young guy dancing in Harlem. And when Christina got my email, I mean, I can't put myself in her, I mean, she will need to answer to that, but I'm sure she was like, you know, okay, it's this girl wants to take a few minutes of my time, but she wants to talk about something that I care about and that I think it's cool. Why not? And, and I've, I've often, uh, I've, I've often found that that's the case, you know, also reaching out to professors, you know, now in academia, if, if I see a research that I think is interesting, that I think, okay, maybe I can, you know, either replicate that or just, you know, do another take on it. I would email the people who wrote it, even if it is, I don't know, Richard Taylor. I haven't emailed him yet, but I'm just saying that, you know, just do it. And then if you get a response, great. If you don't, you'll chalk it up to the fact that the person is super busy and, you know, no harm, no foul. But like you never know unless you try. Yeah, positive intent. And we have found that with the podcast, just in general, you know, we ask a a number of people, some of them, you know, people who we just are, you know, these are heroes. And, and the, the positive response, even for those who sometimes say, you look, I'm just way too busy. I'd love to, you know, keep me in consideration moving forward. But there's also others who go, sure, let's, yeah, let's schedule some time. And we're like, really? (laughs) (laughs) That just was by surprise. And we just are, continually amazed and so i I agree with that just one last anecdote on that because i just 
thought of the perfect example that I actually, when I started all of all of this, and you know, as I mentioned, I was just shooting out emails to people like Christina. Another email that I sent was to Dana Rielli, uh, who is, you know, a quite well-known uh, behavioral economist, obviously written a few best-selling books, uh, but is also, you know, coming from the same country as me, which in my book is a great reason to think that he might answer my email. And the thing that's really funny with Dan Ariely, if you ever try to email him, you will get a very fun, uh, like automated response of, you know, I'm doing way too many things, I have way too much going on. So like, I'm probably not gonna answer you. And here's some frequently asked uh, question link okay, and so right. on. And here's links on how you can find out how I could answer. And exactly. here's a exactly. more about this. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a response, it's like three pages long. Exactly. <laughs> He clearly took a lot of time to, you know, articulate that. But after that came, that automatic thing, he actually did answer me. And not only that, it it um, it turned out that he was coming to a visit in Stockholm not, uh, not too long after this. And we ended up meeting in Stockholm. I even took a taxi with him to the airport. There was a lot of traffic, so I got like a good 40-minute conversation out of this. Um <laughs> And, and ever since then, we've actually met several times, both in Stockholm and in Israel. And I think this is another example of like, he's super busy, but I just kind of, you know, I put myself out there. He saw something genuine in my email and he chose to respond and he was anyway coming to Stockholm and like it worked out. And so you really know, and, and he's definitely one of my idols and, uh, and, and you know, you, you need to just there more uh, in in conclusion like that that's, you know we we, we have yeah. asked him to be we've asked him to be on the podcast and we've got a pleasant response i'm too busy in various different things but you know next time you see him and talk to him just say how much fun you had yeah because tim knows him we've we've met him and various different things and so we're trying to we'll keep at him we'll keep asking i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll put in a good word for you yeah there you go yeah <laughs> Oh, uh, did you want more more music? No, or that are was, you good? That was, that was great. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm so I'm just so glad that we finally worked through the South by Southwest framing. That was, <laughs> that, now everyone knows that it's a music festival. First and foremost, Nurit, thank you so much. We have so enjoyed this conversation. We're grateful for your time. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our boosted brains. Boosted, yes, of course it should be boosted after nerd, absolutely. Boosted. Boosted. Should we say that with a Swedish accent? I, can you say anything with a Swedish accent? Because I can't. <laughs> no, I don't know how to do a Swedish accent. <laughs> I can do the Swedish chef from, you know, the Muppets. Open, give it, open, go open. That was a great character. <laughs> Especially when he had chocolate mousse. That was my favorite. <laughs> don't remember. The chocolate mousse, you know. Tell the chocolate mousse story. Well, he would just come in, you know, the, this this mousse would come in. It's brown, of course. And he would say, oh, the chocolate mousse. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> just, it just makes me laugh just thinking about it. All right. We'll so, include a link in the show notes. <laughs> okay. So how are you boosted today, Quit Tim? Oh, man. I am so boosted uh, because Nurit was such a great conversation, and, and I think that we should talk about her boost model. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the impactually boost model. Yeah. So just real quick again to remind listeners, B stands for understand that behavior, right? What's happening right now? O is identify the actual obstacles prior to developing that situation. Um, the other O is outline the intervention. So make sure you understand that outline of it. S is for study or learn what's really going on. And T, tailor the effort for the situation. So what really caught your attention in the boost model, Kurt? So one of the things I think is, that's important to understand, I think companies often overlook this. I think we oftentimes we, we, we look to try to understand behavior Right, we you know companies tend to do that. We often outline the intervention, or organizations often outline the intervention that they're going on. But one of the things I think we don't always do is that tailor, right? So oh yeah, organizations tend to look for best practices. Ow. I heard that company Y was doing this and it worked really well for them. So we should do... We should adopt it. We should do whatever it is that they're doing. Without thinking about the context of their culture, their organization, their business objectives, their markets. Yeah, That tailoring part, the part that says, hey, this worked really well over here, but we're different. Yeah, it's like and fail fast, you know, became such a big deal, you know, a couple of years ago. I would never want to walk into my dentist office and see a big we fail fast, you know, <laughs> sign. You know, this the idea of sort of randomly adopting great slogans or, you know, best practices is a bunch of horse hockey. It really needs to be contextual, right? I well, we talk about this all the time. We talk about how how important context is and how context matters. That being said, I think the boost model really helps in making sure that people focus in on that. And I think it's a, a big mm-hmm. aspect that that organizations miss. So is there anything from your perspective on the boost model? Yeah, well, I, well I, context rules. So, so the tailoring thing, it really is, is, is important. You know, the other, other part of the boost model that I think is really important and uh, underappreciated or underutilized is the identifying obstacles prior to acting. Um, you know, I, I think about years of sitting on strategic uh, planning teams and thinking about all the reasons that, that we should do something and not thinking about, okay, if we do this, what are the things that are going to get in our way? Well, Annie, Annie Duke talked about doing a pre-mortem, looking at yeah. all those things. So thinking about the project and if the project failed, what were the things that caused it to fail? Great way of looking and identifying those obstacles. I always think about it too. We think about this from business perspective, but even our own personal change things. Thinking about a diet, you put together this great plan about <laughs> here's what I'm going to right. do, all right. of the things I'm going to do. But do we take the time to think about, well, what are the things that are going to upset that plan? What are the things, what are the obstacles that are going to get in the way of me doing all these great things? Yeah. And those are the things that then you know, set us aside. I had this conversation yesterday with a friend of mine. He's super excited because he's been on this on this uh, exercise regime now for like six weeks. 
Wow. And he is sitting there and he's going, I'm using this app and we're doing all these things, but what's going to happen when I fall off this bandwagon, when this no longer works? Oh, he's he's anticipating. And he's starting to think about, so how do I make sure that I don't get off this this, uh, workout regime because I've had one failure or yeah. I've run into this obstacle. So I thought that was really great. Yeah. And I talked to him about uh, James Clear. One of the things that James Clear talks about is never miss twice. And so I thought that was just one of those aspects that I've used in my own mind when we're when I'm doing something of saying, all right, yes, we're going to have obstacles, but get back on that pony and get back up and ride. And don't, don't miss that exercise Twice, yeah. You, know, you can miss that one day because that'll happen. All those other things. So the habit meister himself, the habit meister, the atomic habits man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, Kurt. What else? What uh, what's what struck you? What uh, what from our conversation with Nurit? Well, we had a really great conversation where she talked about the recruitment process and the yeah. the work that they actually did in reducing the biases of that company in their recruitment process. Right. So with that, I thought it was really interesting to see how they were consciously looking for the biases that were impacting that. So what was your take on that? Well, uh, (laughs) you know, the big, the big takeaway for me is if we don't change our processes, we, we won't probably won't change our outcomes. This is the, you know, it's been talked about a lot in recent history in the business world that if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, you are insane. And yet, and yet there's still a lot of companies that keep doing the same thing and expecting different results because they're not changing the processes. They're not, they're not actually changing the way they're getting into their decision making and their, and the, and the strategies that they're using. This goes back to the GI Joe fallacy. It goes back to (laughs) this component of knowing is not half the battle. Knowing isn't even a a very little part of the battle. You actually have to do something with that in order to change. So the component here that I thought it was fantastic how they use this on a recruitment process and looking at it. But what Nurit did that I thought was really important is they started to measure things and to test things and to experiment. So they started working on this to see what worked. And oftentimes we, even if we, we understand that, Hey, we have a situation here and we should change something. Right. Um, and if we do change something, do we actually go back and measure the results? Do we say, right. all right, I made this change, but did I actually follow through and did that in the end change how many people of color and non-20 white-year-old males that we hired? If it doesn't do anything, why, you know, that, then that change wasn't part of the solution. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so the other thing that really struck me was this Brexit discussion about appealing to System 1 and System 2. Oh, my gosh. And I think we should talk about this. <laughs> this was, I mean, it was a very short part of this overall conversation. But what a great insight that, wow. And, and I'm sure it wasn't, she wasn't the first one that made it. But still, no. it's it's relevant, I think, to so many other facets in our lives that we we think about how that messaging is either playing to the system one response, immediate response that we have, that emotional component that says, oh, yes, I, 
I love it or I hate it versus that system too and more rational thinking. And we need to, you know, have these eight factors going into nine, you know, nine different divisions. <laughs> well, it's hard. Of, Engaging system two is hard. It is. <laughs> but the messaging I thought was the, the element of saying, look, those, those people talking about leave tapped into that emotional response, right? And very successfully. And the stay had that conversation at a much more rational, thoughtful system, you had to actually start thinking about all of the facets and going out step two, mm-hmm. step three, step four. Um, and I think the same thing happened if you look at the 2016 election here. In, in the U.S. In the yeah. U.S., Donald Trump was able to tap into system one much more so than Hillary Clinton. Yeah, she very was successfully. definitely yeah. a... You know, you have to think about her policies and processes and various different things. And I, I, I think about the, the candidates right now that we have on the Democratic side that are going in there, and it'd be interesting to do a little bit of a, of an analysis of saying, oh, all right, well, we have, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who is probably very much in the system to thinking, but maybe not. Um, you know, but she has a lot of policy, various different things. Or you look at an Andrew Yang who is talking about UBI and various different aspects of that. And that's a very rational thing, system to thinking, but is he bringing it down into this component of saying it's a freedom dividend, you know, making it an emotional, the the way he's framing that and, and thinking about that and communicating that. So is he trying to touch into some of the system one? It'd be interesting to kind of do actually we need to narrow the field down because otherwise it's way yeah, too it's, huge. It, yeah, yeah, it's too much. Jonathan Mann talked about this in our episode with Jonathan Mann. He spoke to this idea that messaging is really important uh, and most effective when it appeals to both system one and system two. Like it's a you you can craft a message that appeals to both system one and system two. And in in his perspective, those are most effective. And the only way you tell. To, to loop back to testing is if you test different things, if you A/B test them and find out how people actually respond, what are the effects, what are the kinds of results that you get. Um, without actually testing, we just don't know. We're always just shooting from the hip. So I think that's a really important piece, right? So a takeaway is how do you test these? But the takeaway number two on the Brexit component is. That applies the framing of how we communicate and are we appealing to our system one emotions or our system two rational is a very important aspect of how we frame our communications. And are we actually thinking about that? Are we right. are we actually saying, hey, this is something that I probably am communicating from a system into a systems two type conversation. And really, I should be thinking about it in tapping into the emotional side, or I'm only tapping into that emotional side. And do I really need to pull that back and add some system two kind of rational thought around it? And we can do that from a business perspective, obviously politicians, but also in our personal communications and thinking through all of those facets. Yeah. And then how do we test those? I mean, I, I think it's hard to test maybe in a personal communication, but to a certain degree, we probably do that, you know, just naturally. And in a business environment, we can definitely test that, right? Absolutely. And in particular, I think we do that consumer-facing again, but we need to think about organizations doing it internally with their employees better. Absolutely. So, Tim, 
I know you want to talk music. <laughs> well, I've been reading uh, Joel Beckerman's book, Sonic Boom, and he does a great job of explaining. Is it about the Concord? <laughs> no. F-15? Uh, no, but it, it is interesting that he does talk about the effects of, of things like like that. And he talks about uh, this, how sound influences uh, context how it creates context. At Chili's, the sound of the fajitas as they are sizzling on the on that hot plate, uh, you know, this this you know chain of restaurants, as they walk past you with this little griddle and sizzling, sizzle, 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 uh, walking right past your ears, actually engages us and makes us want to, oh, maybe I should get a fajita. Maybe mm-hmm. I should do the same thing. Well, you were talking before we started this about Disney. Yeah. And very purposefully how Disney uses music to set the context for the different parts of the parks. Right. So in Tomorrowland, they're using, it's upbeat music everywhere. It's happy music. You're not going to find, you know, sad songs. No minor keys. No, (laughs) no, all all major keys. Look at you. You're a student. I'm learning. (laughs) I am learning. Definitely. Definitely. No, my, it's going to be all upbeat, happy music, but the, the tenor and tone and experience in Tomorrowland, Tomorrowland is going to be more about future kind of sounds than it is in on Main Street, where it's going to be more down home kind of feeling. And so they change it uh, to architect. They actually have sound architects that are creating these in the Disney imagine um, uh, imagineering imagineering yeah imagineering. Uh, so they're they've been purposeful about this since the park was opened in the early 1960s, which I think is. Brilliant. But today, from a behavioral science perspective, we're starting to understand what the real impacts are. Sound architects. I love that concept of that. Oh, man, that would be a dream job, wouldn't it? For you. For me, it would just be pure <laughs> torture. But that being oh, said. Oh, I would love it. It's like, no, 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 we will not use EDM in that area. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had talked about the other, in one of our other conversations, you talked about going into the store. Yeah. And they had the bad Muzak music when yeah. you said it should have been some EDM type music because of the style of the store and it didn't match. There was a uh, conflict between the environment, the physical environment you were in and the sound environment that was being pumped in. And what Disney, what you're saying from Disney's perspective is they're actually consciously thinking about not only that physical environment, but the sound environment that adds or enhances mm-hmm. uh, and is, is synergistic, synergistic, synergistic with that. So, yeah, they are. They're curating their their song list basically for each context, for each environment, and that's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, do you curate your sound uh, list when you go play based on the based on the environment yeah hell yes yeah, yeah absolutely uh, the things that I would play in one uh, venue are, could be completely different from what I play in a different venue very absolutely absolutely uh, the the volume that I play it at the the intensity the style the all those things vary dramatically by venue uh, not just by what mood I'm in. Well, I think one of the things that I think listeners should take out of this is not just to have a sound architect for your organization, which would be really cool. It have would. the music then in the, you know, particularly if it's a retail or some other kind of component, but um, the working environment within that as well. But I think it's 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 a larger perspective. It's saying, hey, we are 
driven. A lot of our behaviors, our attitudes are driven by the environment that surrounds us and the context within which we're working. Right. And that needs to be curated, that the entirety of that needs to be curated. And we don't often think about these things, which I think, again, is some of the impact that Nurit was talking about, is looking at these hidden biases, these hidden elements within the context, these hidden environmental things. How many people, you know, actually think about the music that's being played and the impact that that has? On the employees. On the employees, on the customers, on all of that. Right. And and putting all that into what about the colors on the wall? What about the types of, of desks that we have? What are all of those facets going into it? Because all of those make a difference. And so we need to consciously think about that. We need to measure it. We need to test it. And then we need to think through what are the things that we're missing? And I think that's that obstacle component in the boost piece, yeah. right? What are those, what are the unseen obstacles flowing down that river and you you hit that rock because you just didn't see it, but it's really important. And it's not just the decisions that we make about them, but the processes that we use to get to those decisions that is so important. All right. So with that, listeners, we won't bore you anymore. And hopefully... This wasn't boring. It was. was totally fun. We talked sound <laughs> architects. How much boring could you get? Come on. I mean, I my 13-year-old would be just like, oh, God, Dad. Sound architects? <laughs> oh, man, dream job. <laughs> <laughs> ah, see, it's contextual. There you go. Oh, that's right. that's Who's right. hearing it? Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this, even if you, if you weren't too bored about our... our welving into sound architecture um, please leave us a great review and uh, we look forward to hearing or to having you listen to our next episode